Hi, I'm Stephanie Luo. Welcome to Surface Time: Confessions of a Diving Junkie, where I chinwag with people who are like me, scuba diver and chronic addicts to being underwater. During the Surface Time today, I spoke with David Joyce and Matt Reed of Evolution Dive Resort in Malapascua, Philippines. So, for all shark-loving divers, Malapascua is a place to go for sightings of fresher sharks. It is a remote island with limited resources. Tourism, especially scuba diving, plays a significant role in the livelihood of the island. When David and Matt first established Evolution, it was never meant to be just another dive resort. Their sweat, tears, have earned not only the accolade of being a five-star dive resort, rightfully, but also a special mention in the National Geographic book. A Diver's Guide to the World by Kerry Miller and Chris Taylor. Here is what, how, and why it is one of my favorite resorts in Philippines. I assume you've done some sacrifice to the Wi-Fi internet god of Manapasco Matt. Yeah, I was doing a little dance this morning to give them the best chance to a good internet for today. Excellent. So I think the connection is pretty good. So far, so good. How things are done generally with you guys? I'd say it's been a tough couple of years. We won't lie, but I think a lot of people have had the same experience. Tourism has not fared well during the pandemic, but we're still here. We're still fighting. We're open and still available to go diving. So I guess that's good. Yeah, it's been very encouraging since they opened the border internationally into the Philippines in February. We've been really quite busy, which has been really, yeah, really good for everybody. Lots of smiles on the island and it's very optimistic. It's quieter now. Traditionally, this would be rainy season anyway, which by the way, it doesn't actually rain that much, but yeah, traditionally there's less visitors. So it's in that period now, but what we have seen since they opened the borders was very encouraging, let's say. That's really good to hear. So. Before we get to talk a bit more about your diving career and how you set up Evolution, that's how I met you guys. I want to kick off with one question, which is, where was your last memorable dive? I'll go first then. <clears throat> My last memorable dive was with Matt on a wreck we have in Malapaspa called the Mogami Maru. It's a Japanese merchant ship that dates back to the World War II. We think it sank in about 1944. And when Matt and I first packed a four-wheel drive with tanks and deco tanks and all sorts of things and drove up to Malapascua in, in early 2009, that was one of the first dives on the island we ever did. And we're still diving at it. It's still one of the best dives or our favorite dive, I'd say. Every dive on it reveals something new to us. And there are remains on the wreck as well, which we're aware of. And I always feel connected to that dive site. Something happened there. Someone died there and we go there regularly and explore it. And it's a real treat for us to have something on our doorstep that is such a great quality dive and always revealing new secrets to us. So that would be my most memorable recent dive. How about you, Matt? Memorable dive was uh, with a group of three different CCR rebreather divers at Monad, where we had a fantastic dive with the flesh sharks, really mind blowing. Four different sharks serving at the same time, shallow water with lots of sunlight in an area where there's super nice coral. And we were there for oh, probably, I think, even 30 minutes with these four different sharks. So it was quite outstanding. What you guys have just shared, the two memorable dives, are actually quite 
advanced version of diving for recreational divers. And obviously, both of you have Evolution Dive Resort on Malapascua being one of my favorite dive resorts in the Philippines. I would love to hear first your diving career, how you started diving, how you ended up. I think one of you is from England, the other one's Irish. Correct. So yeah, you come right. from yeah. two different islands offshore of Europe and somehow faith or whatever brought you together and then set up a shop on Manapascua. So could you please share with us your stories? Yeah. So I'll go first because I arrived in the Philippines first. Let's use that as an excuse to start that way. I think obviously David will correct me if I'm wrong when it comes to stem, but I think we actually both started diving around a similar time. I did my first in 1990, just to discover scuba in the Caribbean with my parents when we were on holiday, that kind of thing, which obviously is pretty common these days. But then once that happened, it was the end of all other sports for me. And I pretty much throughout my school days learned to dive and became an instructor. So by the time I graduated school, I was already an instructor. And through my time at university in the north of England, I was working and teaching classes already as a paddy instructor. So once graduated and I immediately left England, we don't need to talk about that any further, but I went out to Egypt, worked for a year there. Then I moved to the Caribbean and worked there for a bit less than a year before I then got a job in Asia, which was kind of, again, that was that I was in Asia and there was probably no chance I was going to leave then because the diving here is generally so excellent. I actually came to Asia to work on Liverpool in Palau, but it was a Filipino company. So that's. Part of the reason I ended up in the Philippines, because later on, when I finished working on Liverpool, I had a year in Palau and a year in Truck Lagoon. I then came to the Philippines, having met people here when I worked for a Filipino company. So I came to the Philippines, thinking, oh, I'll work for a, a year or so, maybe there, and then I'll move on to somewhere else. And I'm now, I think, in my 20th year here. Yeah, I, I ended up staying for a number of reasons, friendly Filipino people, great diving, lots of amazing places to visit and so on. So yeah, Philippines is fantastic. And that's how I got here. And over that time, obviously I increased my sort of certifications and qualifications up to the higher level technical certifications that you were alluding to before. My story is a lot shorter and quite different. I would have first done this discover scuba dive in around 1994 on the Great Barrier Reef. And I didn't get certified until 1999 in Egypt and then went on to do my dive master in Western Australia in 2002, which was probably up there as one of the best dive experience I could have ever imagined. But I had a career and a life in Ireland. I was a TV producer and director, and I plugged away at that for about 12 years. And I used to work freelance, so I would work nine months on, six weeks off, things like that. And I would fill those gaps with solo dive trips to Asia normally where me and my dive bag would head off and go diving around Indonesia, Malaysia, Thailand, wherever. And of course, ended up in the Philippines in 2009. And much to the surprise of everyone who knew me, I never came home. I ended up staying there. I met Matt because he was my dive instructor for technical training. And we got on very well together, formed a friendship and knew we could form a business together. So we jumped into that in 2009 and Evolution was born. So I did my IDC and became a tech instructor and the rest is history. I wouldn't say it was a laugh in the first sight. There has to be some form of trust that you've built and to then go into business. Have you ever talked about, what's this about the partnership? Obviously it's precious to meet somebody who's 
value system, sense of humor, possibly somewhat aligned. And before you can go into the business and then feel that you can build something amazing together. So what were the key ingredient or chemistry between the two of you? I'd say Matt had a passion for diving that I admired because I was in that space myself. I was just consuming diving, thinking diving. I was very into photography at the time. So we would sit around after hours talking nonstop. And Matt had plans to improve his situation, maybe set up a business. And I had plans. Maybe actually initially I was thinking of setting up a, a bar, an Irish bar or something like that. And we realized we were working along a parallel line. So we should probably come together and work together. But you hit on something very important there. We, being Irish and English, we do come from culturally similar backgrounds. We do have a very similar sense of humor. We do have similar sensibilities. We don't agree on everything. We row sometimes, but we generally agree on a hell of a lot. And we've realized that quite early in our relationship. But I will say, and I've said this to Matt before, a business relationship is like a marriage. You have to work on it. We don't agree on everything. We've, we've had our moments when things have been difficult, but you don't throw the toys out of the pram and say, this isn't working. You say, we're going to fix this. We're going to keep going and keep getting better. And hopefully that's what we've done. Let's see if my wife agrees here. What do you reckon, Matt? My actual wife, but <laughs> David, that's my second wife. <laughs> <laughs> So that you, we obviously, yeah, we have been lucky to find a relationship where, yeah, we've generally agreed on a lot of stuff and in certain situations where David says, I want the walls to be pink, for example, and I don't disagree, I might just let him have that. To keep the balance in the relationship, sometimes he wins, sometimes I win. Like, it's just like a marriage, you have to compromise, but it's worked out very well and I think we both appreciate how well it has worked out, which is great. Another element of it as well is... For better or worse, it's often been an us against them situation where Matt and I have felt embattled by life, whether it's typhoons coming through, rocking the whole of the Philippines and certainly our area or different political situations that are making it tough for business. And we enjoy having a partnership where at least there's a safety net where we can talk to each other and try and solve these problems rather than being all alone fighting the fight. So it is handy having a partnership like that. There's an element of being able to talk things through and problem solving and a massive amount of running a dive center in a remote location is problem solving. I can assure you. Could carry on with the marriage analogy. We have a lot of kids, like effectively all our employees are like our children and any parent knows it's not a simple task. <laughs> I like that. One of the reasons I really like evolution when I stay with you guys, and when I stay with you guys, it wasn't my first time on Malapasqua. I did stay with your neighbor. And so I have seen distinctively on the same island, two different ethos of business operators, business owners, and it's reflected in the, how the children behave when the guests are around, let's put it this way. And that if we continue with this marriage and a family analogy, is you really show your respect and you empower your staff. And the way that I definitely see that through the DMs is that they are very well trained. I've died with so many working DMs and I can say a lot about buoyancy, kicking, spinning skill, what have you, but you train them like tech diver. They have perfect trim. It became a distinct memory for me is because there's one time I went back and stayed with you guys. And I think it was during the time when Hammerhead was passing through. So we went out on a blue water dive and safety stopped 
blue water dive for just recreation diver actually can be quite boring. But watching your DM suspend in the water and being stable and have that perfect trim was actually a really nice reference for us to do that safety stop. I think you have done a lot more. I'm curious to see what's this about you and what do you see your business and where do you run your business the way you have done it? Because there's so many details where I can actually easily compare you to a five-star resort and the experience, that memorable experience I get is more with you guys. That's very kind and thank you for saying that. I think the answer is hidden in our name. Evolution for us, once we figured out that name and brand, it just encaptured everything the way we think. It's always evolving. We're always trying to get better. And we try and promote that amongst our students and certainly our staff that diving isn't a static activity. You don't just get your advanced and stay that way. Always improving. We're always trying to get better. And that absolutely plays into how we dive in the water. And I certainly credit Matt for that. We're always in trim. We're trying to optimize efficiency. We're trying to have the absolute best equipment for the circumstances and make it look effortless as well, which it should be with thousands of hours in the water as well. And that comes into how we run the business as well. It's, it should be something that's always trying to get better, always maximizing efficiency. And certainly in, in the more like really since the beginning, it's in how we look at the environment around us. What's our impact on the ecosystem around us? What's our impact on the community and trying to improve that, refine that and trying to make it get better all the time. Would you agree with that, Matt? I would absolutely. Yeah. I think we, again, maybe that goes back to the previous question about our relationship or so. And obviously we agreed on key, like life philosophy elements that are not necessarily required in a business, but we wanted to include them when we are taking care of the environment and yeah, helping people improve their skills, whether or not they're taking a class with us and all those elements that David and I wanted to make a great business, not just make money, right? It really reflects in the way you operated. Obviously, when we arrive at Evolution, and one of the things we see is the bar. And after we've been greeted by the staff, of course, and then you call your bar Crack House. So where does the inspiration come from? Well, we call it the least authentic Irish buyer in the world. So the idea was to have an Irish theme, but as you've seen it yourself, Stephanie, it's got one wall, the rest is all open facing the ocean. We have no floor, it's sand, and we have friendly Filipino staff. So there's very little that's Irish about it, but we gave it an Irish name and crack in Ireland is an Irish word that encapsulates the sense of fun that we Irish people have, sense of hospitality, of having fun. It can include music dancing, drinking, things like that. But in our case, it's very much hospitality driven. So the crack house is just a playful name and it captures our playful nature as well. And while we take our diving seriously, we take our hospitality seriously as well. And there's been a lot of friendships forged over the years in the crack house and we're pleased about that. And it's a great place to unwind after diving with ocean views and sand between your toes. You talk about the uh, community and they, I have noticed there have been a certain improvement on the island amongst the dive operators. Like for instance, they don't dive down to Monashore to see Thresher Sharks and the lighthouse, the sunset dive to see Mandarin fish. Obviously I dive with other dive operators before you guys. So I saw the difference 
in practice. Let Max say earlier, you actually incorporate your lively philosophy into your business and not just running the business and not just your guests, but also people, your neighbor, not just the neighbor that living right next door to you is pretty much the whole island. Could you share some of the project that you've done for the island? Sure. Maybe I can start with this. There's a, a number of different projects that maybe we can go back and forth, but I guess the most obvious thing that we've been a part of since we started here is marine protection, obviously related to diving as well. The Monad Joel is now a shark and ray sanctuary by law in the Philippines. And it's been that way for a number of years now, but it wasn't when we arrived and there was without question quite a lot of fishing happening there at the time. Unfortunately, as is the case nationwide and in other countries, not just in the Philippines, there is not enough funds for protection and, and for policing. They have the laws in place, but they don't necessarily have the policing in place. So we, together with a number of the other dive shops, were able to get together and figure out some ways to gain funding, basically from donations from divers. And those donations, we were able, together with the other dive shops, to manage the funds and pay the salaries of local guys who used to be fishermen who've been recruited by the local council to be fishery protection instead. So we were able to pay salaries, pay fuel, buy a boat, and in that way have a physical presence at Monad Shoal, even when the dive boats weren't there, to try and stop illegal fishing, basically, in that area. So pretty much since 2010, that system was running in conjunction with the local government unit as well. What was great when COVID hit, obviously, the donations from divers dried up completely. We were able to have saved by that point enough funds from the donations that we were able to keep paying for a boat and crews had to go out to Monad when there were no diving boats going there at all to ensure that the fishermen didn't start to come back. Obviously, through COVID, that was one of the issues. A lot of people have been fishing because they didn't have any other work. So it's always been critical in our mindset here to protect the threat of sharks. It's the number one reason people are visiting Malapasqua. So that project, sadly, at this point, has faded because the money that we had saved up was used up in that first 12 months of COVID. So now as the tourists start to return, Hopefully that system can come back in and the local LGU is also now a little bit more proactive in trying to help us use those funds well to protect the marine areas and the fresh sharks and so on. That are obviously so valuable to the locals via tourism. In that junction, like Stephanie, I also visited Malapasqua before Evolution was born, and I also dived with a neighbor. And the culture on the island before we came was to go out to Monad Hole, which Matt has described already, where the, the cleaning stations may be around 20, 25 meters, deflate your BCD, kneel down and stay still and let the sharks do their cleaning on the stations without the divers clapping around and spooking them, which is an interesting approach when there are thousands of divers passing through the dive site over any given year. And what we saw immediately once we started diving as a dive shop on Malapasco was that this was unsustainable. It was already, we were looking at huge sections of reef that were pulverized. We were turning hard corals into sand. 
you were seeing some awful dive practices from dive guides and customers. And we just knew if we were going to make a 20, 30 year business here, this was not possible. What seemed to be quite a radical concept at the time, we asked our customers to go neutrally buoyant and to do their absolute best to stay still, use the dive techniques that we were often teaching them and to do, observe the sharks from a low trim, if possible, neutrally buoyant. If they couldn't manage that, because some people can't, we were asking them to, for maximum contact with the reef would be a light fin tip for a fin pivot, which we all learn in open water class and should master at that point. We started asking our customers to do this. And then we came up with a simple board called the do's and don'ts board, things you should do at Monad and things you shouldn't do. And for listeners now, they're probably going to seem very obvious, but they weren't that obvious back in 2009 and 10 on the island. And we were telling people, do be neutrally buoyant, don't touch the reef, don't deflate your BCD. And we put this board up in the middle of the dive shop, really to help our local DMs, because they're simple guys who've been educated on Malapasco, which is a very remote island in the middle of the Philippines. And you have, say, a German or an American man or woman coming in, and they have a $3,000 camera, and they don't want to be told what to do. But this board, all that got lo our local DMs had to do was point to the board and that the information should be imparted to the guests that way. And we could then open a dialogue with them about diving habits. And it caused some controversy on the island. There were some rows about it as we tried to promote it down the beach with other dive centers. But ultimately it was adopted and it was adopted with a lot of help from Greenfins, who is an organization that monitors the environmental impact of dive shops internationally, but they focus a lot on Asia. And they actually adopted our do's and don'ts board and made it standardized on the island. So we were very proud of that. And while the culture is not perfect at this time, if you visit Malapasco now, you should be asked to be neutrally buoyant while you observe the sharks. And that has made a massive impact. And we've seen Monad regrow and more fish coming back, as well as in conjunction with our efforts above the water to stop fishing. So it really has made a change over 10 years. And we're proud of that. You also asked the diver not to wear gloves. And no pointer. That really also helped to force exactly, people to yeah. go neutral buoyancy. Yeah. The stick is a controversial thing. People love a stick. You can po point to things, but you could poke things. But a lot of people were jamming it into the reef to help them with their buoyancy and that. And again, we tried to eradicate that. And gloves are allowed for people with medical conditions. But again, if you have a glove, your tendency is to grab. And if you don't have a glove, your tendency is to improve your diving, evolve your diving, if you like, and work on your techniques, not to be as grabby and using that as a way to, to maintain neutral buoyancy. So they have been actually outlawed by the local government, which is great. The new ordinance that I mentioned that they have now that includes, as David said, those it is officially illegal to wear gloves, but people still wearing them, of course, I saw them the other day, but. The LGU, the local government unit, is on board with those kind of things now, which is great. It's just a question of enforcement. So really, we would ask divers to abide by the rules. It's difficult to be, we don't want to be wagging our finger at all our customers, and that's not how we operate, and we don't want people to think that. What we're trying to do is create an environment where the guests see for themselves, they have a realization themselves that there is something at stake here, and best dive practices should be done 
and it will make a difference to the reef in the short and long term. So it's not a, a stick situation. It's more of a, we'll do this together rather than we're going to wag our fingers and make you do things. It's not that environment. So people should understand that. Yeah, I think it, it makes sense. It really is a, a simple act to help to contribute towards the what I call climate actions, the better diving practice. It forces you to improve and work on your buoyancy. Staying neutrally buoyant underwater is a constant goal and a constant practice for every single diver. It's a permanent thing. Every dive is a practice dive when it comes to buoyancy, trim, propulsion techniques. You're always got room for improvement and that's how we dive. It's to always go, mm, maybe I could do better next time. So it doesn't matter if you've 10,000 dives or 10 dives, it's a journey always. And people should, both Matt and I, we talked about this, that we're both competitive and we don't see diving. It is recreational. It is fun, but I'm competitive against myself. I want to be better than I was on my last dive and I want to be really good at what I do. So we're constantly applying best practice to how we dive ourselves and trying to impart that to our staff and certainly our students it makes a big difference when you're teaching to, to show them what's possible. We take it seriously, but have fun with it as well. There's nothing like seeing a dive professional neutrally or negatively buoyant, thrashing around, creating a coral dust crowd, that cloud around them with a bunch of customers doing exactly the same. There's a cognitive dissonance there. You can't be a dive bro if you're writhing around on the bottom of the ocean. So that's what we think. <laughs> <laughs> it makes sense. Totally makes sense. And Matt, you also teach rebreather. On one of the stay I had with you guys, I actually ran into a friend who's a co-founder of Scuba Zoo. They were actually out there getting trained with you to do the rebreather. They were then going to do the shoot for a month on the island and for Thresher Shark. So can you share a bit more about rebreather? To me, it's like when you have car, you can drive Honda and <laughs> you can also drive Ferrari. And rebreather to me, it's like driving Ferrari or underwater. Okay, I'll try and give you a simplified version. Your Ferrari analogy, maybe, yeah, the rebreather unit. Obviously, they have an initial capital investment, which is much higher than regular open circuit scuba gear. So certainly that's the first thing that most people are going to come across, the first kind of barrier that's an issue is expensive. So rebreathers tend to only be used by certain people where it's worthwhile to spend that much money. The great thing about a rebreather in the simplest terms is basically a nitrox mixing machine. If you're familiar with how nitrox benefits you in an open circuit way, giving you less nitrogen in your breathing mixture and therefore allowing you to stay a bit longer underwater. Now an open circuit, that's great, but you're still going to run out of air, right? Out of gas in your tank because you have a quite limited volume. So aside from the rebreather is a mixing machine, the nitrox mixing machine, it's also not allowing bubbles because it's recycling your exhaled gas. So that means that you don't have to use very much gas out of the small tanks that are on the rebreather. So the combination of having during pretty much any depth of your dive, the perfect nitrox mixture and not using very much gas means you can stay down longer. You get to benefit from this like optimum nitrox mix at any given depth then stay down for 
extended periods of time. So yeah, where somebody might be going to Monad looking to threat the sharks on air or nitrox for anything maybe up to 50, 60 minutes, I've done recently a three-hour dive. Same depth, nothing really different about the dive. We get to stay longer. So in the simplest terms, it's like that. It's less, I would say personally, less like a Ferrari and maybe more like a semi-truck where it's giving you a different experience for sure. But it's also not necessarily more complex or more dangerous in the ways that people think. I guess a semi is also dangerous as well as a Ferrari. You drive too fast or the truck's too big. I don't know. Bad analogy possibly, but yeah, it's often not as complicated as people think. The actual mechanics of the rebreather is very simple, which is why I like to just describe it as a nitrox mixing machine. And what about if you go a bit deeper, you obviously would need to add other gas like helium. When you go for a longer or even deeper dive on the rebreather, that would become a decompression dice, right? Yeah, deeper, definitely. You can stay in the recreational limit for a very long time without it becoming a decompression size. But certainly if you go deeper, it would be. The beauty of the rebreather then is so as you make the decompression ascent with your plan, they stop. On open circuit, you see these guys with all the extra tanks they're carrying, right? They need those because they have to switch gases during the ascent to accelerate the decompression stops. Whereas the rebreather does that almost automatically by itself. So you never have to switch to any tanks or anything. We do carry some extras as a backup, but in general, you just breathe the rebreather and you just do the dive. And actually it's for me way simpler and a lot of ways actually safer than open circuit. Thanks for that. That's actually very helpful. I want to bring this out for the listeners who are in the recreational space and are being fascinated by rebreather and have a bit of a, a quick intro for them to think about. And it does has its own benefit, but it does come with a bit of a capital requirement upfront. That is true. It's mainly beneficial from a price point of view, people who are doing deep trimix dives where the helium is very expensive, you have to put a lot less in. A dive that might cost you $200 on open circuit would only cost you 20 on the rebreather. So if you're doing a lot of those type of dives, then the capital investment will pay itself off. We're definitely talking about diving and it's probably one of those expensive sports in a way. And a side rebreather, there's the underwater photography. Speaking of which, I have seen some of your work being displayed in various different parts of the resort, including the public toilet, which is, my God, it's the cleanest one I've ever seen. And with plenty of supply of toilet roll. <laughs> yeah, this was in our business plan, yeah. Stephanie. <laughs> <laughs> really? Really. Had to be. We both experienced toilets all over the world and all over Asia. And there was one simple thing that this one had to be a clean, decent toilet that you weren't afraid to go into. It's true. <laughs> but, and... Okay. I'm so glad I got that out of you. So can we go back to have another very fond memory being on the island with you guys? Whereas uh, I think that it's pretty much was my last time many years ago now. I haven't been able to make a trip back, but I hope I can do that soon. Whereas I went with a group of friends. And we, I think that was just after the typhoon Yolanda. Yeah. November, 2013. Yep. Or hi, Antwerp international listeners. 
Yeah, and pretty much wipe out every single tree there was on the island. There's lots of damages and then stuff needs to be done. So I think what we then did with you guys, and I really like that project, that little project we did with you guys, that we came in and we helped to raise funds and we brought books. I think, David, it helped us to identify a family where we can actually raise the funds for. Do you remember that project? Yes, I do. Yeah. I suppose we've always tried to have sideline projects as well because we landed in the community from outside and we want to be part of that community. And Malapasqua is a contrasting place. It's a place on the rise or was on the rise pre-pandemic. Economically, it's growing, but really is quite different from places like Manila or Cebu or urban places in the Philippines. It is remote. It is provincial. And that attitude prevails. And economically, there are a lot of people who don't have good opportunities on the island. That's right. You did bring lots of books. And I remember you and your friends came over and we had, that was fantastic. And we've continued that right up till now, really, where we had a promotion where we collect books. We encourage customers to bring a picture book, something like the Gruffalo or something like this, that we might all read to our own children. And this was a lot inspired by the fact that Matt and I were having children at this time. And reading is a bit of a luxury in the Philippines. It's not something that people do. Books are for school and people don't necessarily go to a bookshop because there are very few. They don't have a book, buy a book to read for pleasure because economically things are difficult. So we had this idea to try and make books available simply for fun and to promote reading for fun, because that's not something that maybe the children around the island conceived of. They saw textbooks only. And after that, there were no more books in their lives. So. We have several hundred books now that our customers have brought from all over the world. And as part of our dive master training, much to the, some of their surprise, but always to their delight, we would bring them down to the local school and have them read to a classroom for half an hour, reading the Gruffalo or what the Ladybird heard or all these titles that are quite easy for different age groups to enjoy. And that was part of our DM experience and customers like yourself with, we would arrange for them to come down to the school and do readings. And then in more difficult times, like the pandemic, we would gather our staff, their kids would come in and we do the same for them. It's difficult. We don't know quite how it goes down with the island, but we're trying our best to introduce something different in how we do things. I think it went down well. It, we have lots of good feedback from it, but again, we're not trying to get into the teaching sphere. We're diving, we're teach diving, but we're not teaching kids. So we don't want to pretend that we're redes redefining how school run on the island or we're not, but we are trying to just say, Hey, Books are fun and we have books available if you want to borrow them or use them as a resource. Yeah, that was something that you were involved with at the early time. And also I think you brought pens and papers and all these kind of things, which simply aren't available on the island and are a real treat for kids to get. Yeah, maybe I can add in that as people would bring items, sometimes people would bring books that weren't the coloring books, that they are activity books that are not really reading books. So we started using those as prizes and giving them out to the kids in the school if one of the kids wanted to come and stand up at the front and read the book themselves. So as David said, we're not necessarily trying to teach them, but if they wanted to do that, they could get a reward. And we're just yeah, trying to encourage the kids into enjoying it and finding the benefits in reading. I, I really like that because uh, you're engaging with the community. And like you say, you're not changing the schooling system, but you're providing them extra curriculum and then sharing with them things that outside the classroom, because there's always an ongoing, like you say, 
quoting what you were saying earlier, is the evolution, is the ongoing learning, the different things, different perspective about life. And reading books allows you to just think differently, to imagine differently, to dream bigger. And then Melapasco being such a remote island, it just provides them that resource. And I like the way that you really bring that community connection. And as a diver, as a consumer of scuba diving, I'll put myself on that side of the bracket. It makes my diving trip more meaningful because I'm really privileged enough that I have the bond and time to go scuba diving. There is still a limit as how many scuba diving holiday I can do and just for myself, but to get to know the, the local community, to see how people live, where the student goes to school, because I think when we went, he also organized for us to have a little tour around the island where we went to the local school. And I think we also organized for a school party where your team at the crack house actually prepared all the food and the games. And then we got on the boat, you took us from one end of the island to the other side of the island that we would not have otherwise got onto because there's no transportation other than motorcycle and we wouldn't know how to get there. To me, that was still like all the best holiday I've ever made. Yeah. And Stephanie, I remember that now really well. We traveled, I would approximate one kilometer from evolution, one and a half kilometers to a place called Gibbatayan on the other end of the island is different world. There's no tourism. It really is authentic and simple and deprived Philippines over there where people live mainly off fishing. Some of them will travel the long distance of one and a half kilometers to the main beach to work, but a lot of people don't even come over to that side of the island very often. So yeah, it was a pleasure to have that kind of came from, <clears throat> we were thinking about this recently when we started first moved to the island, it was just before Christmas in 2009 and we didn't have a resort or, or a dive shop at that point. We had a building site. And we were staying, Matt and I and my now wife were just there. It was Christmas day. We were very far from friends and family. We were in a strange place where nobody really knew us. We were these guys who kept visiting this construction site every day. And we were wondering how to spend Christmas. So in the week before we come up, we've been buying supplies for ourselves, simple things, because we were just getting electricity on the island then. So we weren't exactly cooking much or doing anything, but a few basics. And we bought loads of sweets and chocolates and biscuits as well. And we gave those all out walking around the island on Christmas day. And it sparked a tradition for us in the resort once the business was operational, that every Christmas we would hold a party for the kids in our specific barrio or our little area. So not even the whole island, that would be too much. There's thousands of kids there, but the 200 children in our city, that's become a, an annual thing. We will basically pay for all the food for the kids, organize the games. If somebody donates us a microphone and a loudspeaker, the teacher will help organize the kids and then evolution will buy something practical for the children. We bought umbrellas one year. We bought flip-flops or slippers as they're called in the Philippines one year, things the kids can use. And then we make delicious delicacies in the crack house kitchen, hot dogs with marshmallows all on the same stick, which the kids love. The sweetest spaghetti you've ever eaten in your life. The kids love it again. And of course, lots of cookies and things like that. And we just go and have a, a few hours out in the basketball courts, having a bit of fun, a bit of crack. And that's an annual tradition for us now that we're very pleased with. It's a chance for us to touch the community 
around Christmas every year. And that's exactly what we did when you guys came over and it was a fantastic day. And, and when we do that, any guests we have in the resort that day <clears throat> will often forego diving in the afternoon and come with us, be a part of that experience because with 200 kids playing games and everything, all hands on deck, we need all the help we can get. It is a fun afternoon for everyone. Yeah, I think the thing that I could add, which is connected back to the book reading, Dave, you mentioned the giveaways, Christmas gifts and that for the kids. And we've also always tried there to keep with items to where we could show them that they can reuse, recycle or not use single use plastic. So like a water bottle was what I think we gave away one year as for a reusable water bottle. And it's that we all also have that element in the book reading as well, that we believe truly that the kids are the people we need to teach to ensure that our things to do with environmental protection, be it in the ocean or garbage on the island and so on, we have to work with the kids because it's basically too late for the older generation. So yeah, using those, the book reading and the Christmas parties to also try and just slowly get this message out there, reusable shopping bags as well, right? Not just at the Christmas party, we have those at the resort, we gave them to all the staff. So when you go in the morning to buy your bread or eggs or whatever, use a reusable shopping bag rather than the plastic ones they like to give you. If you buy one egg here on the local store, if I walk down the street to the store and buy an egg, they'll put the one egg in a plastic bag for me to carry it at home, which most of us now understand is not necessarily great. It's very remote here. Yeah. No, they don't have the advantages, privileges that we've had to be taught and understand those issues. So yeah, doing that through education, information to the kids, hopefully over a generation, we start to see some change. I really like your philosophy of business and I do hope that the economy recover and that everything will come back into normal and even better than before. I don't want the Wi-Fi internet got to run away. So before that happened, I'd like to ask questions that I asked all my guests to wrap up the episode. So the first question I have is in your drive bag, what are the top three items that you would always carry with you? For me, it'll be no surprise that books are in there. I think both Matt and I are bookish and I would never go on a dive trip without enough to read. That would be one for me. I would probably bring a water and vinegar solution in a spray bottle as well. Cause if you're planning a dive trip, the last thing you want is for your ears to go out halfway through. So I, I like to keep my ears vinegary when I'm on a dive trip. Be a fleece because even when you're in the tropics like the Philippines, where it's 30 something degrees, you could come up from a dive and feel the chill, especially if you've been on a nice long CCR dive. So something warm, even if it's warm might be in my dry bag. Yeah. David said, please, I have a woolly hat. Always. Even when it's a hot, sunny day, like David said, sometimes it's pretty chilly when you get out of the water. So I have a woolly hat in the bottom of my dry bag, which maybe doesn't get used that much, but it's there. I also always have a couple of plasters or band-aids, like a mini first aid kit tucked in the bottom of the dry bag. Again, they don't get used very much. They're always in there. While I guess the other thing that I have always in there is my telephone these days. But the beauty being the telephone isn't for the phone. It tells me the ties. It tells me my GPS location. I download my dive blog on there. It's integral to everything as it is in our lives as well. Thank you. That's actually very useful. You're the only person who told me with details why the phone is so important. The next question, what are your three top tips? 
that you would give on safe diving practice? And I think given you are the working dive operator, it would be really useful to hear from you as a safe diving practice for diving professionals. I'll go first here. Maybe we can share the three because they're probably quite similar and I'm going to steal <clears throat> Matt's one right now. My one would be to engage your brain. And this comes from Matt's mentor, John Bennett, back some years ago, who was a very deep diver doing crazy dives in the Philippines. But it's to be a knowledgeable thinking diver. We always say the most important piece of equipment for us diving is our brain. And I would often use this story with when I was teaching, especially recreational students. If I told you that by the end of the week, you were going to do a spacewalk as an astronaut by yourself. Do you think you would be paying attention to your equipment and visualizing and planning everything perfectly? Or do you think you'd just jump in and start swimming around like a puppy dog with a big smile on your face, ignoring the basic systems around you? So what we've noticed as professionals is people, and especially people who would say they're experienced, and that might be 50 to 500 dives. It's very easy to disengage your brain when you're diving. You're looking at the shark, you're enjoying the manta ray, you're enjoying the weightlessness. And the next thing you know, you check your gauge, you haven't looked at it in a long time. It's 30 bar and you're now in a tense situation where you need to get to the surface and do a safety stop and things like that. So you need to concentrate when you're diving, you need to stay engaged and you need to use your brain. And for me, that would be one of my top tips. It's not a passive activity. You have to be active when you're diving, checking systems and being mindful of your situation. So that would be my top tip to any diver. Do you want to take a second one, Matt? Sure. A serious one. And I've got a funny one for later, if you like, Stephanie. My serious <laughs> tip would be don't believe everything you hear, question your instructor. And we're all there. And I've had say to my students all the time, but you're diving with me and you see me doing something that you think is stupid. I might be doing something stupid. No, I'm not infallible or just because I'm your instructor and I've got a bit of experience doesn't mean I don't make mistakes. And I can tell you for a fact, there's a lot of instructors out there with a lot less experience than me pretending to have more experience than they actually do. And when you do your open water class, because you don't know any better, my instructor is amazing. It's the best instructor ever, which is great. And I'm very happy your instructor made you feel confident in that way. But I would also encourage people to say, why are we doing it like that? And why are we doing it like that? So that when you walk away, and somebody says to you, hey, why do you do it like that? Your answer is not because my instructor told me. The answer is X, Y, Z, you can explain. And so you should be asking your instructor to explain properly to you why he's teaching you to do it in that fashion. And if are there other options? Because not everybody necessarily should be doing everything exactly the same. And there's often, as the phrase goes, different ways to skin a cat. And that applies very much, I think. I would add another one on a, a serious note, if it's okay. And it's an obvious one and one that should be promoted in most materials, hydration. We work in a warm environment and we see people who fly from Europe, for example, it might take 24 hours to get to Malapaspa and they might have a couple of beers. And the next thing they know, they're face down in the sand, vomiting over by the coconut tree. We see this all the time. They forget to drink water. A flight dehydrates you, hitting a humid 33 degree environment dehydrates you and suddenly people hit, we see it often, they hit an absolute wall of dehydration and feel ill and it might spoil the 24 hours of their dive holiday. And again, if you're doing diving, you have to be hydrated to make sure you stave off any kind of worries about decompression illness and things like that. So drink lots of water. Yeah. 
Thanks for that. And Matt, I really like what you talk about question your instructors. Recently, I've heard a story of a diver, I think it was on course, and it was a dive accident. So this is an open water student, as I've been told, that died because of out of air. And it was at a shallow depth because it's doing safety stop. What really caused that happen, apparently, as a diving instructor myself, that I can't comprehend how that would happen. But apparently this diver, he actually surfaced and then he got taken back down to the safety stop because he missed his safety stop or he missed finishing his safety stop. And then the instructor told him to go back down and result to which he ran out of air. He died. I didn't hear about that. In- yeah. But yeah. Yeah. It's really important. Students need to know that they are empowered to question. What about the fun, safe diving practice you had in mind? You got to take that out. Yeah, I had a funny tip, which actually I'm stealing from somebody else because I asked somebody 20 years ago now a similar question in a humorous way. And the answer that I got was, if when you're diving, somebody kicks you in the face or knocks off your mask or anything like that, you're swimming too fast. <laughs> okay. Yeah, my daughters would say that's a dad joke. Definitely, right? In fact, you thought it was funny, Stephanie. Anyway. <laughs> okay, the next one. What is your greatest fear? That's a very tough question. Is this supposed to be non-diving related or diving related? It's up to you. It's an open question. I suppose I'll go for a, a cliched answer, but it is true. Having four kids now, I do fear for the future. And we're in a horrible phase at the moment between pandemics, wars, food shortages, economic turmoil. It is a difficult time to be a parent and I do, my fear is what's the world going to be like for my kids? Not cliche at all. What about you, Mike? It is my turn now. Yeah, it's a very tough question. I have to be honest, I live most of my life not trying not to be afraid of anything. I'm going to speak this question from a different perspective. I think everybody has fears somewhere, somehow. But in your case, the focus is not about you not having fear. I think the focus is more about you practical enough and mature enough to be able to manage your fear. So when you deal with something that worries you, because fear is the false expectation appearing real, how do you manage that? Because it's all to do with what you, what's going on in your mind. Uh, the you seven P's, it's my response. The what? Se- the seven P's, proper preparation and prior planning prevents poor performance. That's a really good one. I'm going to quote you for that. It's not mine. I can't take credit for it. I think I got it from the British military, but it it applies in diving and in life. We use it in technical diving. I'm not afraid to go to 100 meters or 150 meters because I know I have the equipment, the training, the knowledge to be able to do the dive. Even if something goes wrong, I deal with the problem and move on and finish the dive safely. So trying to apply that to life. Yeah, be ready plan ahead, have back up a plan and systems in place so that when things don't work out quite right, you can still deal with the situation. Definitely not just admitted he's a prepper. <laughs> yeah, I have. When we got locked down for COVID, we were like, let's make sure we got enough supplies for a few weeks. We looked out back in our stock room, we're like, yeah, we're good. <laughs> I tell you fact, through two years of COVID, I didn't have to buy any shampoo. <laughs> gotcha. We had a lot of supplies in our stock room already because of our remote location. So that is true. I am a prepper. No shame. 
Thanks for that. I really good to know. Okay, the next question. What is your greatest extravagance? Gym equipment. I guess my yeah. opposite of gym equipment is food, probably. <laughs> <laughs> That's why the pair of you buddy up so well. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. He's also had some gym equipment in his house. He's been uh, I know. but he has also. Yeah. Okay, the next question, the original question would be, what do you value most in your friends? I'm going to spin the question slightly, since you're like each other's second wife. So what do you value most in each other, in your relationship? I think we covered this definitely humor at the end of the day or in the middle of the day or the beginning of the day, you need a laugh <clears throat> and we do have a laugh and we've always had a laugh. So I would value that in any friendship, but definitely with Matt as well. So humor would, for me would be very important. I agree. Of course, I'll go with honesty. Let's be in a relationship like this. We don't agree. We have to tell each other we don't agree like we did mention before, but yeah, and be able to work through that. Like, honesty is the best policy. Yeah, I believe, and again with Matt, but also with all my friends, the true measure of a friendship is the ability to disagree, but not take it personally and not fall out over it. Of course, things can happen in life where rifts happen between people, but you should be able to have a robust disagreement with a friend or a business wife and carry on. And that's critical. And that's how we operate. Just because we don't see eye to eye on something doesn't mean we have to fold our arms, turns our back to each other and sulk. We go, okay, this needs solving. Let's move on and we will solve it. I would say the ability to disagree is critical in any friendship and any partnership. Yeah, the sense of humor throughout your operation, especially like the uh, Wi-Fi password, you actually change it every day. We do. Yeah, we've come up with some lots of silly ones and had a lot of fun with it where we, can you remember some, Matt, <clears throat> that there is no Wi-Fi as the password. So somebody asked one of our staff wants the password, Wi-Fi password, there is no Wi-Fi. And it doesn't get old. We still giggle at it all these years later, watching silently as the person gets confused and goes, but it says there's Wi-Fi. And then they go, no, there is no Wi-Fi. But it says there's, it's still funny. Come on. <laughs> I think we've had, I think we've had so many silly passes. Yeah, you know, I've seen a few. <laughs> Your favorite. What password? What password? Yeah. One of the other ones I re remember was ask someone else. They say, what's the password? Ask someone else. You have been listening to Surface Time Confessions of a Diving Junkie. My guests today were David Joyce and Matt Reed of Evolution Dive Resort in Malapascua, Philippines. Having listened to their stories, it has further validated my belief that the making of a great business is more than about making money. While making money is still a priority, it is equally important to incorporate personal values, life philosophy, and sense of humor into the business. In doing so, it creates circular benefit, like the butterfly effect, spreading the feel-good factor across all the stakeholders. We as the travelers and scuba divers visiting the island it helps to improve local economy. The island residents get to enjoy better quality of life and therefore continue to make an effort to protect the environment. In turn, the environment and the ecosystem above and beneath the surface bounce back and continue to thrive and circle back to us 
scuba divers, and travelers who get to enjoy the healthy marine environment, warm connections with the residents, making more new memories. In other words, it's karma. What goes out there will come back to you, and often in multiples. By the way, the crack house does take the hospitality very seriously. You must experience it yourself. Surface Time is executively produced by Noetic Production and music by Dress Studio. 